Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Uh, if you could please uh, stand for a blessing from Father Edlison. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Bow your heads for God's blessing. May the God of peace make you perfect in holiness. May he preserve you whole and entire spirit, soul, and body, irreproachable at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the prayers of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the angels and saints, may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a blessed evening. Our speaker this evening, a native of England, Joseph Pierce, is director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute and editor of the St. Austin Review editor of Faith and Culture series, editor of the Ignatius Critical series editions, and senior instructor with Homeschool Connections and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. His personal website is jpierce.co. The internationally acclaimed author many books, which include bestsellers such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, and The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, which he gave a talk on here. Joseph Pierce is a world-recognized biographer of modern Christian literary figures. His books have been published and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, Italian, Korean, Mandarin, Croatian, and my favorite, Polish. <clears throat> my second daughter is named Zosha. Pierce has hosted two 13-part television series about Shakespeare on EWTN and has also written and presented documentaries on EWTN on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings, and The Hobbit. He's participated and lectured at a wide variety of international and literary events at major colleges and universities in the US, Canada, Britain, Europe, Africa, and South America. He is quickly, and I think drinking Guinness together was the catalyst of this at the St. Patrick's event, become a warm friend at the Institute. Please join me in welcoming Joseph Pierce. Thank you. Good to see you, Father. Good evening. It's really good to be back here. Um, I already felt honored to be part of what the Institute for Catholic Culture does because it's just a marvelous apostolate. But having looked at the all-star cast they have lined up for the next 12 months, I, I, I'm tempted to say in Latin, uh, Domine non sum dignus. <laughs> Lord, I am not worthy. Um, but it's great to be back. And, and you know, it's, it's hard to beat giving a talk on St. Patrick's Day, on St. Patrick, imbibing Guinness. I mean, how does one do one-upmanship on that? Well, speaking on John Henry Newman on the very day on which he's canonized, when we could not say yesterday, St. John Henry Newman, pray for us, where we can say today, St. John Henry Newman, pray for us. So the Englishman beats the Irishman. Sorry, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. 
But of course, uh, Newman, Newman, a great friend of Ireland as well, um, setting up university there in Dublin. So, but it's really good to be back here again and to be speaking on our new saint, St. John Henry Newman. And I'm going to go through his life. I'm going to t- the approach I'm going to take is going to be chronological. So I'm going to begin, you know, he was born in 1801. So I'm actually going to begin with changing his diaper. I'm actually going to look at the world in which he was born. Um, so basically, right at the turn of the 19th century, all sorts of, sorts of things were happening. 1801. The previous century, the 18th century in England, had been the age of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is a name that the Enlightenment gave to itself. It's an arrogant name. Everybody, everybody was in the dark until we came along, right? We're the enlightened ones. Everybody else is just in the dark. Another name it gave for itself is the age of reason. In other words, nobody knew what reason was until we came along. And one of the reasons for that was because earlier than that, and this of course plays directly into Newman's life, in the 1530s, a secular tyrant called King Henry VIII established a state religion and imposed it upon the people of England against their will. Now, as regards the Catholics of England, they resisted heroically for 300 years uh, until Catholic emancipation, 1829, when Newman is a young man. But so from the 1530s until the 1820s, for almost 300 years, Catholics were actively persecuted in England. And for the first half of that period, for one and a one and a half centuries, for 150 years, they were put to death for being Catholics. Catholic priests or harboring Catholic priests was punishable by death. Now, the point is, when you, ha- when you establish a secular religion, a state religion, and you ban the true religion, and then eventually, through propaganda and intolerance and persecution, you beat Catholicism out of the majority of the English people, what happens is they don't, they don't go running to the secular religion, we've seen the light. They despise that religion from the beginning as an imposition by the secular government. They try to cling to their faith, and when over several generations that faith was weakened and eventually lost, the vacuum was filled by agnosticism and atheism because the vacuum was a secular religion which nobody accepted. That's nobody... So uh, uh, overgeneralization, but that's the whole vacuum became secular England and England blazed a trail in secularism, agnosticism, which is why England and Scotland had a head start in the so-called enlightenment. The correct word for the enlightenment is not enlightenment. As I said, that's a supercilious self name that it gives to itself. The correct name for it would be the disenchantment because those people did not believe we lived in an enchanted cosmos. An enchantment being a cosmos which is full of goodness, truth, beauty, that's sung into being, enchantment from Latin to sing, sung into being by a, by, by a good creative artist, composer, God. So we have the disenchantment. And then in 1798, three years before Newman's uh, conversion, 
a couple of poets, Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, and William Wordsworth published a volume of poetry called The Lyrical Ballads. And this led to the birth of English romanticism. I mean, it predated by some things, but this was really the explosion that set it off. So when Newman's growing up as a young man, he's basking in this English romanticism. And what does that actually mean? Well, first of all, the romantics were turning their back on the disenchantment, on the enlightenment. They were seeking re-enchantment. So they were looking at the goodness and glory and beauty of nature and seeing in nature the God of nature. So in Numa's Apologia Pro Vita Sua, he acknowledges this, the influence of these romantics, English romantics, on the Oxford movement, on the movement within the Church of England of which he was a part. He mentions specifically in the Apologia, Sir Walter Scott, not an Englishman, but a Scotsman. Heaven forbid I should get that wrong. Scottish and English romanticism. So he mentions Sir Walter Scott, he mentions William Wordsworth, he mentions Samuel Taylor Coleridge as people that were seeking a new nobility, a rejection of the empiricism and godless scientism of the previous century. So you have this romanticism, if you like, Newman and his, and his um, confreres are basking in this romantic uh, re-enchantment. Now, one manifestation of that re-enchantment is this disgust with the Enlightenment, this disgust with the turn away from religion, and the, the playing of leapfrog. So these people in the Romantics sought to leapfrog over the whole of the period of the late Renaissance and the, um, uh, and the Enlightenment and find something purer and holier and ha that has more nobility. So this led to the rise of neo-medievalism, a new love for the Middle Ages in the 19th century. And we'll see how this plays directly into uh, Newman and his conversion. There are three major manifestations of this neo-medievalism. -medi um, the first was the Gothic revival in architecture. And again, the Houses of Parliament is the, uh, the most famous example of the Gothic revival in architecture. But when, when it became legal to build Catholic churches in England again, following emancipation, most of those new churches that were going up were built in the neo-Gothic style. The leader of the Gothic revival, Augustus Pugin, was a convert to the faith. And at this point, there weren't many converts. You had a, you know, a few tens of thousands of really heroic Catholic Englishmen, English families that had stayed true to the faith for 300 years but there weren't really any converts. So Augustus Puget is part of a trickle of converts in the 1820s. Another manifestation is the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood in art. So as the name suggests, they were seeking a purer vision that was pre-Raphael. So the early Renaissance and the medieval rather than the late Renaissance and what came after. So there are two manifestations. But the third manifestation of neo-medievalism was the Oxford movement within the Church of England, of which John Henry Newman was the leader. And what the Oxford movement sought to do was to graft the modern Anglican church onto the pre-Reformation English church, to say basically that the 19th century Church of England 
was the same church as the pre-Reformation, pre-Henry VIII uh, church for thousands of years in, in England. And they talked about a via media, a middle way between the errors of Rome and the errors of Geneva. In other words, the errors of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. But they considered themselves to be Catholic because they were trying to graft themselves onto a pre-Reformation church. So throughout the 1830s, the Oxford movement had a, had a significant influence within uh, English culture in general and the culture of the Church of England in particular. The rise of what became known as the High Church. So the High Church were Catholics and the Low Church were Protestants, both existing within this same church. Um, another name for the High Church were the Anglo-Catholics, the English Catholics. Now, Newman, because of his study of theology and his study of history, and I'm so excited you got this array of, of courses being taught and lectures on various facets of this multifaceted saint. Still feels good to be able to say saint when we talk about Newman. Um, but because of this, the, the way he's rooted in theology, in the, the ancient heresies of the church, such as Arianism, the history and teaching of the early church, he became aware that this whole via media thing was just not true. It was, it was um, advocating an untruth or a lie. So in 1845, after several years of increasing spiritual crises in his own life and outlook, Newman was received into the Catholic Church. And this is a crucial time in the uh, uh, English-speaking Catholic world, I would say. And, I, and I'll explain why. Uh, because really, if you talk about the Catholic revival in the world as a whole, but specifically and especially in the English-speaking world, because we, we'll see how Newman, if anything, has had more influence on this side of the pond than he's had on the other side of the pond, um, that this Catholic revival in the English-speaking world begins with Newman's reception into the Catholic Church in 1845. The neo-medievalism, which was a consequence of Romanticism in England, was the gestation period. Say, 1798 to 1845, 47-year gestation period. Newman was born right at the beginning of that. So if you like, he was coming of age uh, within the womb of this romantic neo-medievalism, which he attributes himself in his Apologia. Now, you know, one thing we need to remember is that God is the writer providentially of all of history. History is his story. So when we see ourselves in a particular part of the story, our own particular time, our three score years and 10, our 70 years, our three score years and 10, if we're lucky. We sometimes think that the little part of the picture that we see is the whole picture. Right, that secularism is more powerful than the church and it's destined to triumph over religion. And yet, if you look at every single decade since the time of Christ, that would be the situation. Secularism is always more powerful than the church, but it never triumphs over religion. Because the gates of hell will not prevail. 
And the fact that we're still here um, two millennia into the Christian story shows it. So let's look at the hand of providence, because we forget this. 1845, an absolutely crucial turning point in uh, the Catholic revival. The starting point, in fact. The turning point in the fortunes of the modern church. What else happened in 1845 in England or in the UK? Anybody? 1845. When you think of 1845, what might you think of within a British Isles context? I heard someone say Irish potato famine. Okay, well, that happened also in 1845, the beginning of the Irish potato famine. Well, how is that relevant? Because in 1844... Newman had not converted, the potato famine hadn't started, the Catholic presence in England was minuscule. So a few tens of thousands of recusant families who had courageously stayed true to the faith for three centuries, no converts worth talking about, no real influence in the culture. And then in that same year, if you like, at the highest echelons of the intellectual world and the spiritual world, Newman, who was lionized as being a brilliant in terms of his intellect, holy in terms of his, his life, eloquent in terms of his rhetoric. This man who was seen as the, at the peak of what it should to be a good Englishman, becomes a Roman Catholic, which sends seismic shockwaves through the English establishment at the highest echelons. And simultaneously, as a consequence of the Irish potato famine, we had the Irish diaspora. People leave Ireland in their droves because they're starving to death. Of course, many of them come over here. Many go to Australia, but many go to England. So overnight in England, you now have this new uh, higher echelon of society because Newman's conversion, by the way, was, if you like, opened the floodgates for many other blue-blooded intellectual converts to the faith came in his wake in the years after Newman's conversion. And at the same time, you have this new Irish working class. And all of this is just 15 or so years after it becomes legal again because of Catholic emancipation to build churches in England. And so overnight, Catholicism is now a major force within English culture. So we see here again, uh, trying to see the bigger picture of history that one of the recurring features of history is death and resurrection. That you see the death of the faith and all worldly people will predict it's the end. And then you see it's resurrection. We can take more recent examples. Russia. Now who would have believed after the Russian Revolution 70 years of imposed compulsory atheism where Christianity is illegal, where hundreds of thousands of Christians are put to death. After 70 years of it, because that's what it was, 1917 to 1989, 72 years if you want to be precise, nobody alive in Russia could remember Christianity in Russia. It was dead. If you're a worldly person, that's the end, right? There's no memory. There's no living culture. It's over. 
kaput, dead. And yet we have now in Russia, I saw some statistics re recently, you know, we've got to take statistics with a pinch of salt, but uh, they're uh, the highest proportion of people that say they believe in God and it's a Christian God of anywhere in Europe. So uh, look at China, the fastest growing part of the Christian church, including the Catholic church, is in China. Right? There's something about, as G.K. Chesterton said, the church is always dying and being born again because Christians worship a God that knew the way out of the grave. So 300 years of persecution in England, only a thin thread of believers who for the most part stayed quiet because they've been taught to stay quiet. And then all of a sudden, this resurrection. So let's look at Newman now and his contribution. One of my colleagues at the Augustine Institute has edited two volumes of meditations on Newman. Um, I got, um, and I want to recommend them to you. Um, one is called Waiting for Christ, and these are uh, selections from Newman's sermons as meditations for Advent. Perfect time to be thinking about buying that. And then and the other one is The Tears of Christ, which is Meditations for Lent. And again, these are um, extracts from John Henry Newman's, St. John Henry Newman's sermons, which are marvelous. But what's wonderful and weird at the same time about them, I use weird, by the way, in the original Anglo-Saxon sense of the word, um, W-Y-R-D uh, in Old English, that which basically is full of the mystical presence of God's providence, not weird as in wacky or odd, right? that basically these sermons, the vast majority of the sermons that we know of Newman were actually preached before he became a Catholic. But what's astonishing about them is how profoundly Catholic they are. And we shouldn't be that surprised because those of you that have read G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, a book which is certainly orthodox, was published in 1908, 14 years before Chesterton's own reception into the church. Newman and Chesterton thought like Catholics, believed like Catholics, and preached like Catholics long before they signed the dotted line. And there are various reasons for that, but that would be a sidetracking. So Newman, as this wonderful, gifted preacher, which we can see in his sermons, he's also a, a, a wonderfully gifted theologian, and I don't think that it's going to be very long before St. John Henry Newman is named as a doctor of the church. It should be another reason to celebrate. And this will be certainly in part, or in main part, because of his theology. And perhaps the most important thing about Newman's theology is his, his development of Christian doctrine. It's essay on the de development of Christian doctrine. Now, this can be misunderstood, and it certainly wasn't misunderstood by Newman. But the idea of development of Christian doctrine means that the Catholic Church's teaching can change. But that's not what Newman means. Newman means it can develop. The Catholic Church can never 
teach or preach something that contradicts what it taught and preached before. It's impossible for it to do that. The better analogy is the analogy of a tree to understand what Newman's getting at with his development of Christian uh, doctrine. And I love to quote Tolkien on this, one of my favorite uh, sayings of Tolkien from one of his letters. And it came out in, in the, the madness or mania of the modernism that followed in the wake of the so-called spirit of Vatican II. All sorts of wacky ideas that were never in any of the Vatican II documents are being put forward as being, well, they're not in the documents, but they're the spirit of it. What Tolkien said, and this is absolutely in keeping with uh, what Newman teaches in his understanding the development of doctrine. He said, I don't understand this mania for the so-called purity of the early church. Why should we believe that a sapling is superior to the full-grown tree? Why is a 100-year-old church superior to a 2,000-year-old church? See the image of the tree, right? He says, and even if the sapling was superior to the tree, even if it were true, if you chop down the tree looking for the sapling, you don't find the sapling, you kill the tree. There's a whole understanding that what the church moves through the centuries, of course, St. Athanasius had to deal with the Arians. He didn't have to deal with the communists. He didn't have to deal with the Marxists. He didn't have, a, have to have a view on what Karl Marx taught, on what Friedrich Nietzsche taught, or what, they, or what the rise of the Nazis have to show us about the teaching of Christ and the truth of the gospel. But a 2,000-year-old church does have to do that. But it responds to those modern heresies as it responded to the ancient heresies with a timeless, perennial, unchanging truth. That the sapling and the full-grown tree are the same tree. So again, the ecclesiology, which Newman again helped us to understand much more clearly, of the church as the mystical body of Christ that the church doesn't, so that Christ doesn't sort of cease to be incarnate in the world when he's ascended into heaven. He establishes a church. He says that what is bound by St. Peter will be bound in heaven. What is loosed is loosed in heaven. He leaves sacraments. He leaves especially the sacrament of the Eucharist, where he is really incarnately present with us. The church is the mystical body of Christ, something which Newman's theology, the development of doctrine, helps us to understand. As distinct, by the way, from modernism, which was a heresy condemned by St. Pius X and was despised by John Henry Newman because he saw the impact of it, especially in the Anglican church, Modernism believes that the church has to move with the world. Whatever is fashionable and powerful in the world, the church has to accommodate. And of course, that could be different things and 
each generation, but they, and we know what it is, various manifestations in our, in our own generation, but as this is transient, I'm not going to waste our time on it. Um, but what they have in common is they are all secular. They are all worldly. They believe in a heaven on earth. And they're all rooted in the first and the worst of sins, which is pride. Chesterton says, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Okay, so Newman the theologian. Newman the philosopher. Again, like Chesterton, Newman is not happy to be confined in one little pigeonhole as a specialist, you know, a, 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 an expert on the Aryan heresy, which he was. He went in different directions. And as a philosopher, he's probably best known for his uh, uh, grammar of ascent. And the important thing about this is Newman states specifically and explicitly in that book uh, is that the church insists on the connection between fides et ratio, between faith and reason. The church never asks us to believe something which is irrational. And indeed, the whole point of the grammar of assent is to prove that the assent that we give to orthodox faith is something which is rooted in reason. He's very much, very good um, at showing how our engagement with the truth through reason is necessary because of the objective, uh, the object that we're, that we're contemplating. The truth, this aspect of reason is, 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 is the one reasoning and the thing upon which it's be, reason is being used. It's getting beyond ourselves. Same thing with beauty. But where I think he really, because this has obviously been done by other philosophers, going right back to the Greeks and St. Thomas, etc. But where I think he, he really hits home is the subjective dimension of, uh, of this engagement with the other in the existence of the conscience. The fact that we have a conscience suggests that we are answerable to something beyond ourselves. Because the conscience, if you like, is the voice in the ear that tells us that what we're doing and what perhaps at this particular moment we want to do, we shouldn't be doing. If we didn't have a conscience, we'd do exactly what we want all the time. Even though what we doing what we want is often self-destructive and destructive of others. So he says, you know, that in culture, the, the, the voice of conscience is the voice of God. But certainly the very fact that that other voice, which transcends, if you like, supersedes our selfishness, is itself an indication of something which is other and beyond us, an indication of the existence of God. And he talks about children. He says, our children understand this instinctively. In chapter five of the Grammar of Ascent, he states specifically, the children get this. Children don't need to be taught conscience. Now, as I was reading Newman on 
the instinctive, they use the word instinct, the instinctive way in which children just understand the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong. I'm reminded of uh, Tolkien, again, in, in his famous lecture essay on fairy stories. He's, taught, he's, he's responded to a critic that says that, you know, the, that children want to know whether something is true or not. So, of course, if it's a fairy story, you'd have to start talking about what do we mean by true? You know, because, you know, can you go and visit Cinderella physically? Can we get on a bus and go and visit? No, you can't, right? Because she's not in these three dimensions where we find ourselves now. He says, yes, they do ask that question. They do want to know whether something is true or not. But he says that children, and he had, Tolkien had several, and read to them and wrote for them. The Hobbit was written for his own children. Um, he said, but more than that, they want to know what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, who's on the right side. They want to get that right, right from the beginning. Right? They, want to be, they want to be rooting for the good guy. And that is actually more important in the, in the, in the, in the child's imagination than whether it's true or false. They're happy to suspend their disbelief, but they want to make sure they're not backing the bad person. So this, this um, uh, essential, in, in the Latin sense of the word, essential essay to be, this aspect of our very being, which, which is conscience-rooted and conscience-centered, is itself a suggestion of uh, the existence of God. And of course, the grammar of assent is ultimately assenting to our conscience. Now, use other, other um, arguments for the existence of God or how our our, how our reason can assent to faith. And he, he uses the, uh, the, uh, the understanding of circumstantial evidence, shall we say. Sort of evidence that's used in a court of law. And if we were a jury, not, none of these particular individual pieces of evidence would be sufficient to convict us, or to convict the criminal, right? To convict us of the guilt of the, the defendant. But when you put all of this evidence together, right, and, and, you, and so that there's a convergence of evidence, then you make um, a judgment based upon that accumulation of convergent evidence, each of which, if you took it apart, would not be enough. But the point is, you don't take it apart because it all goes in together. It's all part of the picture. This sort of idea of convergence, another analogy he uses, which I like, is that we, again, he keeps reminding us we are not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. So we have to make judgments based upon our own understanding and experience, although it has to be subject to reason, okay? Um, and he talks about convergent lines. Now, if the lines are converging, but only very slightly, they might even look to be parallel lines, but they're not. We can see that they're converging. We might not see where the two lines meet, but we know they're going to meet because we see the convergence of evidence. So what, he, what Newman's doing there, and you can see he's engaging with modern philosophy. And the fact he, he acknowledges that most modern philosophers will argue against this, but he then argues that their argument against it takes a Thomistic approach in this, right? 
he, he, he recognizes, acknowledges the argument against and then responds to that. Um, that he's trying to reassert, to reaffirm that Christian belief is rational. It's not about feelings, not about prejudices. And I would say when he, when he, when he accentuates the importance of the conscience, I would like to um, stress a, a harmony or a dovetailing of what uh, Newman is teaching with, with the teaching of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, because Newman as a convert is not Thomistic in the sense that his training is, is not specifically Thomistic. Um, it's often a case of great minds thinking alike, and I think this is an example. So for instance, and I think I may have mentioned this during my last talk, um, or perhaps the webinar on, on Hopkins that I did, but the, the, the modes of perception that, that Aquinas um, insists upon is that all perception of the real, all perception of reality is rooted first and foremost in virtue. And especially and specifically the ultimate virtue, which is humility. And I, I, again, I, you know, I, I, some of you say, Hannah, what's the greatest of the virtues is love, right? Not humility. Um, I would merely say, by the way, that when you understand the two, they're the same thing. Love is to voluntarily give ourselves to the other person. To put ourselves second or last. We cannot voluntarily give ourselves away. Be selfless in sacrificing ourselves for another unless we have humility. Because pride is putting ourselves first. That's what it means. Making ourselves God. Self-deification. We do what we like, which is why pride is the first and the worst of sins. It's through the sin of pride that we give ourselves permission to commit the other six deadly sins. Right? Once we are our own God and we make our own rules, we can do what we like. So humility is the antidote to that poison of pride. And so Aquinas says that through humility, we have a sense of gratitude. And it's through that sense of gratitude that we have a sense of wonder. And it's that sense of wonder which leads to contemplation. And it's contemplation which leads to, in Latin, dilatatio, the dilation, the opening of the mind and the soul into the fullness of reality. So let's take this now and harmonize it with Newman. Humility leads to gratitude. Gratitude brings a sense of wonder. Wonder leads to contemplation. Contemplation opens the mind and the soul into the fullness of the real. Conscience. Listening to our conscience is an act of humility. Ignoring our conscience is an act of pride. So Newman and, and, and Aquinas are saying the same thing. It's through the centrality, the essential uh, um, wholeness of the conscience that we come to an understanding of the, the real. 
that we can assent to other truths. In the absence of that, if we kill the conscience, we kill our ability to assent to anything except our own self-gratification. And the tragedy of that, of course, is that self-gratifying is never satisfying. Again, the Latin for satisfaction, satis, meaning enough. The one who's addicted to themselves is an addict. Addicts never have enough. Okay, so this is Newman. We've talked about Newman, the preacher. We talked about Newman, the theologian. We talked about Newman, the philosopher. I would like to end um, with Newman as the great literary figure, one of the greatest writers that the English language has ever um, been gifted with. <laughs> His literary legacy. And the 20th century critic, George Levine, called Newman the uh, greatest literary stylist of the 19th century. Now think about that. Chesterton wrote a book called The Victorian Age in Literature. The Victorian Age in Literature is a golden age in literature, with the possible exception of the Elizabethan Age in Literature, and that's really because of the giant figure of Shakespeare. It's the, the golden age. The Victorian age is the golden age in English literature ever. And this 20th century critic, a, re, a reputable 20th century critic, George Levine, thinks that Newman was the greatest writer of that golden age. Now, even if we want to disagree with him, the fact that it's even possible for a literary critic of his caliber to make that claim and not be laughed off stage proves that Newman is one of the finest writers in the English language. Now, we see this in all of his writing. That's why he's a joy to read. He's also, the enjoyment is also an endurance to the modern reader because we have got used to a dumbed-down, journalistic, short, snappy, ten-word sentence way of reading. Newman can give us one sentence that could be two or three hundred words long. <laughs> he uses dinosaurs, those extinct monsters, the colon, the semicolon. <laughs> and he uses them with brilliance. But what it does mean, of course, is you have to take time. And I've given talks on poetry where I say that one of the most glorious, beautiful, and most powerful things about poetry is that poetry demands the taking of time. And we need to remember in this context that we can't make time. Right? As Hopkins says, with soft sift in an hourglass, all of our sand of time. Each of us has our own amount of, of sand, sands of time. We all have our own unique amount, and it's different for all of us. And it's sifting through that hourglass as we speak. And when it gets to the end of it, we will die. And there's nothing we can do about it. So we're soft sifting an hourglass. We can't make time. But what we can decide is, as Gandalf would tell us, what to do with the time that is given. Do we spend our time wasting time 
or taking time? Are we distracting ourselves to death on trivia? Or are we taking time in the presence of that which leads us closer to God? Great poetry is time taken, not time wasted. Reading the prose of John Henry Newman is time taken and not time wasted. And the glory and beauty of his prose, as I said, can be found in his sermons, even in his theology, and even in his philosophy because of his writing style. But of course, it's going to be seen probably at its most beautiful in his literary work. And I'm going to begin with literary work, actually, with a work of nonfiction. And that's his very famous Apologia Pro Vita Sua, the apology for his life or the defense of his life, uh, where he answered uh, a libelous suggestion that he was condoning lying and that he was a liar himself. And this masterful defense of his own progress towards conversion and his life as a Catholic after conversion is, in my opinion, second only to St. Augustine's Confessions as a spiritual autobiography and conversion story with power. So I recommend it. Not easy reading. Not only because of Newman's style, but because Newman is getting the grips with the various debates and struggles within the Anglican Church in the 1820s and 1830s and early 1840s. Now, if, if we're not rooted in that particular history, uh, we're not going to understand it. But I mean, I read it as a young man sometime around my conversion before I knew virtually nothing about any of this. And it taught me a great deal. Then we have Newman as a novelist. There aren't many saints who are novelists. Another reason to be cheerful. St. John Henry Newman, the novelist. He wrote in 18, well, published in 1848, just three years after his conversion, Loss and Gain, which is a fictionalized, quasi-autobiographical story of a young man's conversion to Catholicism, arguing with his various friends about various aspects of things. Much more um, accessible than the apologia um, uh, covering much of the same ground. So if you want the easy approach, go for the novel. He also wrote another novel called Callista, which is a novel set in the early church, but it's also a conversion story, but it's set in the catacombs. And again, Newman, his work in history, did an awful lot of work with the early church fathers. So he was writing about what he knew about. Incidentally, by the way, this was a time when, 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 when bishops of the church uh, and a hierarchy of the church went in for novels because around the same time as Newman was writing this, uh, Cardinal Wiseman wrote another novel set in the catacombs called Fabiola. So clearly in those days, they wouldn't get in the act. But Newman as a poet, and it was mentioned, I think, earlier about the dream of, I think uh, that, that uh, it was pronounced Gerontius. It can be pronounced either Gerontius or Gerontius, and the Latinists will argue with you uh, ad nauseum on the topic. Um, but the dream of Gerontius is basically a, a, a longer poem. It's the most ambitious of Newman's poems about a man's death and his being delivered by his guardian angel into the loving arms of purgatory. Um, and I know C.S. Lewis found um, Newman's vision of purgatory much more conducive to his own imagination than Dante's, although Dante was a major influence upon him 
uh, Thomas More's. Um, and of course, Newman had his own purgatorial visions, but, uh, particularly in um, the Great Divorce, inspired by, in part by Newman's understanding of these things. That long poem, uh, Newman's most ambitious, was actually turned into an oratorio by Sir Edward Elgar. So you can actually not just read the poem, you can go out and listen to it. Um, he also penned as poems that became um, well-known hymns. Lead kindly light, praise to the holiest in the height. And like other great priest poets, such as one of my favorites, St. Robert Southall, um, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to mention him in passing. Also a, a fine poet, influence upon Shakespeare. But as a priest and a priest poet, the poetry is also preaching and teaching. And if it's done well, not in a way which grates, but in a way which, which delights. So St. Robert Southall gives us poetry on the Blessed Sacrament of the Altar, basically where he's arguing with the Anglicans of his time about the real presence in the Eucharist and, 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 and such like. Newman does the same thing. So he has a poem called The Golden Prison. I don't know if anybody knows their Newman, but what's The Golden Prison about? Nobody knows their Newman. The Golden Prison is about purgatory. Again, so that, again, so we have this uh, understanding. What Newman's doing is defending the Catholic faith, defending the teachings and doctrines and dogmas of the Catholic faith to non-Catholics. Teaching and preaching. He has another poem called "The Sign of the Cross." And again, you know, one thing that's going to differentiate a Catholic from a non-Catholic is a Catholic will do this when he prays, right? It gives us away in public. So he writes a poem called The Sign of the Cross where he talks about that. It's not just a sign. It's a prayer. Just the action. Regardless, there's no words attached. The action itself is a prayer. And he says a powerful prayer. And who knows when we do this, whether some soul in another part of the world is strangely and mystically comforted. Now, my favorite of Newman's poetry is The Pilgrim Queen. Uh, it's very medieval, very simple, but it's a, basically it's a story, tells a story about this vision of this queen. And she's somewhat sorrowful because she's in exile. She's in England. She loves England but England no longer loves her. This is, of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and specifically Our Lady of Walsingham. So just to finish, to conclude, you know, where do we see Newman's legacy in, in this day and age, and perhaps on this side of, of, the, of the pond? I wrote a, an article fairly recently for the UK's Catholic Herald called Newman and America. And I said, it's no surprise that the reason that Newman's a saint is because of Americans. In other words, the prayers for miracles that led to the two miraculous healings were both made by Americans. He's loved much more over here than he's loved in his homeland. What's that they say about prophets? So in this day and age, 
Newman centers on, on campuses across the country, secular campuses across the country. First one was established only about four years after Newman's death. Can't remember where it was now. Um, somewhere in the Northeast. There are now 2,000 of them. 2,000 Newman centers doing what Newman asked for um, in his, in his, in his uh, book, The Idea of, 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 of uh, uh, Christian Education. That in secular institutions, Catholic students have to get together and have their own society to support each other in that secular environment with all the hostility that comes with that, but also to witness to that secular society in which they find themselves on college campuses. So Newman Centers. And I'm so pleased to discover that one of the sponsors of this event is the Cardinal Newman Society, another one of my favorite apostolates. And the, 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 the Newman Society has established the Newman Guide to Choosing a Catholic College, um, which has really helped the new generation of newly established Catholic colleges throughout the United States, founded in the last 40 or so years, many of them inspired by Newman's vision of what a Catholic education should be. Newman's spirit is in those Newman Guide colleges, and it's very appropriate that Patrick Riley and the Cardinal Newman Society are calling that guide the Newman Guide. And so, all of this, as important as it is, is as nothing. Because we could say, until today, in fact, I did say until today, often, that the Catholic revival in English-speaking worlds stands on the giant shoulders of John Henry Newman. Standing on the shoulders of a giant. But now we know that the English-speaking world and the Catholic revival, and indeed Catholics everywhere, English-speaking or otherwise, can pray for the intercession of St. John Henry Newman, knowing that their prayers can and will be answered because of his presence with Christ in the place where we're all supposed to be heading. So from standing on the shoulders of giants to standing on the shoulders of saints. Saint John Henry Newman. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Um, two quick questions, um, re and I think this kind of relates to our times. Um, to the extent that you know, could you talk about Newman's view on papal authority and his various letters with respect to that? And secondly, did Newman write anything extensively on the problem of physical evil and evolution, since Darwin was more or less a contemporary of Newman? Thank you very much. Well, two tough questions to begin with. Um, yeah, basically, Newman insisted in the Apologia that he was not at variance with the church's teaching on things such as papal infallibility. Um, what he was, uh, he was at loggerheads with the Ultramontanes at the time of the First Vatican Council, who were completely gung-ho 
for uh, paper infallibility and the Immaculate Conception. Uh, and, and Newman never, uh, ever, at any stage said he didn't believe those. What he was known as is an inopportunist. In other words, that he agreed with the dogmas. He questioned whether it was an whether it is an opportune time to actually promulgate them as as doctrines. Um, so uh, it, it was inopportune. So an inopportunist. But it's not because he didn't believe. It was about whether it was the right time to be making that a. Uh, a definitive item of dogma. So that's, 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 in, in, in the apology, he, he, he's absolutely very much at pains to say, I am not at variance with the teaching of the church on these issues. Um, now, as regards Darwin, that's a very good question. He does um, uh, talk about evolution. He, um, and I know that, I, I can't remember if it's in the apology or not offhand, but there certainly is a biography of Newman, a very good one, by Merrill Trevor, um, uh, what's it called now? Where she does actually spend some time talking about uh, about Newman and evolution. I don't think he said much on it, but there is some passing comment. Unfortunately, my memory is not up to remembering what exactly it was. But Mariel Trevor's book, which yeah, I can't even remember what it's called now, but and she wrote she wrote a two volume uh, sort of more scholarly, weighty biography of of uh, of Newman. It's not that it's a, it's a sort of a, a, a more accessible later volume published i think in the late 1970s if you look up Mariel trevor m-e-r-i-o-l trevor uh and it's certainly there's a discussion of darwin and evolution in her book on newman there best i could do on that sorry you're welcome thank you there's a quick question coming in online from lisa kern she's wondering if you could repeat the name of newman's poem about mary yes it's called the pilgrim queen pilgrim queen thank you uh, thank you, Dr. Pierce. Um, my question is maybe out of scope, but I hope not. Uh, and it's actually about uh, Rome's decision to incardinate uh, uh, John Henry Newman. Uh, specifically, it seems kind of peculiar in such that uh, Rome seems to have concentrated for a couple of centuries on counter-reformation Europe and the uh, North Africa and the immediate Islamic world and not paid that much attention to England. So their decision to incardinate him seems something of a departure. Can you comment on uh, their decision-making process and uh, what their motivations were in, in taking this step? Well, uh, some of this is conjecture. Uh, I don't know that you can state it explicitly, but I think it was Pope Leo XIII um, trying to be a peacemaker so um, there, 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 was, there was known tension between uh, Manning and Newman. And when it was decided that to make Manning a cardinal, um, then I think the other 13 decided to make Newman a cardinal at the same time and to say, look, regardless of whatever differences you've had, this supersedes that. I think that was the, that was the intention of it, to make sure that both men were made cardinals so that, 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 first of all, so that the Pope was not being seen to be partisan, right? To, to make one a cardinal, not the other, would, would make Leo XIII appear to be on the side of one or the other in the ultramontane, inopportunist discussions that happened earlier. Uh, but also, I think, just to be a peacemaker, to say that basically some things supersede and transcend the disagreements you've had. That would be my, that would be my conjecture on the topic but I, I'm not going to say that's definitive. Could you assess the influence that uh, St. 
uh, John Henry Newman had on the Council Fathers in Vatican II? Well, I mean, uh, certainly everybody uh, likes to claim Newman. Um, uh, because, you know, he's a giant, and, and obviously the fact he's been canonized has been, has confirmed that, right? But, but as, uh, his theological, specifically his theological influence has been, has been profound for a very long time. And the, we, we have, you know, the, the, his essay on the development of doctrine, the idea that, yes, the church can develop its doctrine, uh, it has been used by both sides. In, in other words, those that are authentically believers in the development of doctrine and those that are actually believers in the changing of doctrine. And there's a very big difference. Uh, and I think sometimes Newman's been claimed by those people. Uh, again, the, the, the technical term for those people is modernist, and it's a heresy. Uh, and Newman would have been uh, absolutely, um, uh, I say horrified. I think somebody, somebody in heaven is not horrified by anything. Um, but certainly would not, would not be comfortable with, with anybody who's a modernist theologically employing his name to sanction their heresy. All right, we'll conclude with this question coming from online from Catherine Murch. She's wondering if you could please clarify the point that you were making about convergence. Was convergence a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think that Newman just uses it in the grammar of ascent as an analogy to talk about how if, if various aspects of knowledge or understanding of reality are um, converging towards one particular view of things, then that convergence in itself should be seen as further evidence. And he used analogies of convergent lines. So yes, it's, it's a good thing. It basically, it's a, it's a further means of, uh, of that grammar of assent to belief in God that he's talking about. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mr. Pierce. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.